0: I am so glad to be with you. Anybody else excited about being in the house of the Lord this morning? I am so glad to be with you. I just want you to know that you are loved and uh, that you are prayed for here. Uh, It's been a prayerful morning. The elders and many of our leaders have been praying for you. And as Pastor EJ said, if you are here and we have yet to meet or connect and you have not yet gotten a chance to get a chance to meet some of our leaders or our team, please don't leave without us being able to shake your hand and get to know you a little bit. We'd love to wrap our arms around you as you take your next step in your journey with Jesus. With that being said, I wanna get right into the Word of God today because we got a a lot of ground to cover. Today, I'm gonna ask a really, really important question and that is, what do you believe about the Holy Spirit. What do you believe about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is one of the most important areas of the Christian faith. To know what we believe about the Holy Spirit is one of the most important areas of the Christian faith, but also it can be argued, I think rightly so, one of the most misunderstood areas of the Christian faith. I want you to pray for me as we dive into this because there. I was thinking this morning about a quote from uh, a professor, a very famous professor, John Murray, uh, who uh, used to say, now you got to listen to this quote or you're going to think I just misspoke. But he used to say, it is it is really hard for me to give talks on subjects that I've thought deeply about. It's really hard to give talks on subjects that I've thought deeply about. You may think, well, isn't the opposite true? It's hard to give talks on things you haven't thought deeply about. Well, the truth of the matter is, is when you thought deeply about any topic, there's so much in there. Trying to give some brief, succinct talk on that topic is really difficult, but that's the task today, to try to make sense of, uh, of the work of the Holy Spirit. The person and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in and through us as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. You know, I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of confusion. On the one hand, there are those who believe that the Holy Spirit is nothing more than emotionalism, and you see a lot of that in the world, in the church today. On the other end of the spectrum, there are those who believe the Holy Spirit is nothing more than intellectualism, and you see a lot of that in the church today, and it reminds me of this quote, this famous quote by C.S. Lewis, when in doubt, quote, C.S. Lewis, always make you seem 28% smarter than what you really are. But C.S. Lewis said this, the devil always sends errors into the world in pairs, pairs of opposites. He relies on your extra dislike of the one error to draw you gradually into the opposite error. And that's the way that he works. So there are those among you, those that are here today, those among us, that that absolutely despise emotionalism. We don't like the histrionics, we don't like all of the hyper-behavior, and so because of that dislike, we are gradually being drawn into a hyper-intellectualism where the Holy Spirit is no longer a person. He is nothing more than a doctrine to be taught. On the other hand, there are those who, who absolutely despise hyper-intellectualism. I'll never forget when I tell my family, I'm going to seminary. And they say, you're going to the cemetery? And they were convinced that if you go to that school, they're going to teach the Holy Spirit out of you. And some despise that high intellectualism, and without knowing it, being gradually drawn into a hyper emotionalism that doesn't treat the Holy Spirit as a person. He's nothing more than a force for us to demonstrate our own power. But today we're gonna to go deep into what the Word of God has to say by looking at a beautiful passage that's gonna help us to understand that the Holy Spirit comes as a gift from God who changes hearts. We're gonna learn a lot about the person work of the Holy Spirit. But first, the Apostles' Creed. That's the series we've been in. We called it The Essentials, and we're looking back at this old ancient statement of faith for a couple of reasons number 1 it was it is really well written that's why it survived the centuries because it's very succinct but very clear on the core beliefs that the christian faith is built off of and that unite believers all around the world and throughout time but the other reason why we're looking at it is to humble ourselves to remember That we got to be careful about generationalism, thinking that our current generation is somehow wiser, smarter, more insightful than previous generations that have come before us. There's much to learn. Salvation and Christianity does not start with your conversion. Doesn't start with your local church. Doesn't start with a particular denomination. The work of God predates all of that. And it's good for us to be reminded of what the generations have said. So if you have this card we've passed out several weeks or you can look at the screen, read along with me uh, silently or if you wanna read aloud, you can. I just wanna rehearse what we have read uh, and talked through so far and then I'll add one additional line to what we've looked at so far. Says, I believe in God, the Father almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, I believe in the Holy Spirit. So much of what we read, we celebrated over Easter weekend as we look at the high price that was paid for our salvation on Friday and reflected on our gratitude. Then we came back on that Sunday and celebrated that he kept his promise and rose on that third day. And we celebrated the fact that the cross is empty, the tomb is empty, and he is alive. And then we come back this week, and we are reminded of uh, the Trinitarian nature of our God, the triune nature of God, three in one, the Godhead, the ancient believers, our predecessors believed that, and we should believe it too. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, working together to execute the plan of salvation, which was orchestrated by the Father secured by the Son, and applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to see today, that the Holy Spirit applies the victory of the cross to the life of the believer. It's one thing for us to say that at the cross— Jesus accomplished the victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave over every spiritual adversary. It's another thing for that victory to be applied to the life of the believer and to the local church. But that's what the Holy Spirit does, and he does it two ways. First, by demonstrating his strength. He demonstrates the strength of God, namely that God's strength is superior to the forces of darkness that are at work in this world that we're going to constantly be confronted by the forces of darkness in our neighborhoods and our communities and the world and the brokenness and injustice and corruption and evil that we encounter each and every day. But fret not because the power of God is greater than the power of darkness. How many praise God for that truth? But the second thing he does is demonstrate divine power Through salvation, by changing our hearts, awakening us to the truth of Jesus Christ. If your heart and your eyes have been awakened and opened to the truth of Jesus Christ, just know it's not because of some great research on your part. Don't pat your back and give yourself an attaboy and say, man, aren't I wise that I searched all of the material and came to the right conclusion? Let me just say, salvation is a gift of God. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't regenerate your heart and open up your eyes, it will not happen. But if it had, ha- has happened, all praise, all glory and honor is due unto his name. Amen. Now, with that being said, we're going to look at Acts chapter 8. Now, before we get to Acts chapter 8, though, I need to give you a little bit of background on what the book of Acts is all about. It is written by Luke. Now, Luke has a gospel named after him. Luke was a historian, and by professional trade, he was a medical doctor who came to faith through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and dedicated the rest of his life to capturing for our benefit and the benefit of believers throughout uh, every generation what Jesus had accomplished, what he taught, and the movement of the Spirit even after he ascended. Look at Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Acts represents the second volume of Luke writing to someone named Theophilus. Now, throughout the centuries, there's been a debate. Is Theophilus a person or is it a name of endearment for the church? In Greek, it means lover of God. But let's just assume it's a person for right now. And he says this in verse number 1. In the first book, O Theophilus... I have, uh, I, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So in that first book, what we would call the Gospel of Luke, he captured all that Jesus had done and taught that he thought to be pertinent to someone's understanding of the fact that Jesus is Lord, that he is uh, a part of the Godhead, that he was the Son of God coming to the world to bring about the kingdom and our salvation and to rescue humanity from the prison of sin. That's what he captured in the book of Luke. But then he gets to Acts, and what he wants us to see is that Jesus' work and teaching continues through the apostles. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so what did he command them? Well, in verse number 8, I'm glad you keep asking these great questions. In verse number 8, he tells us what he commanded them. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How many want power? All right, two of you are honest, (laughs) amen. Everybody wants more power, and let me put it a different way. How many want more strength, more strength than what you have right now? When I was younger, the older folks in the church that I went to used to say, when you asked them, how can we pray for you? They would say, pray my strength in the Lord. Anybody ever heard that before? Pray my strength in the Lord. And it was their way of saying, pray that I have the strength needed To live the Christian life as God would call me to do because this life is hard. Well, Jesus says to his apostles, the spirit of God, when he comes in you, will give you power and strength. But what is that power and strength for? It's not for entertainment purposes, contrary to popular belief, but his indwelling presence, the person of the Holy Spirit, comes to take from the treasury of Jesus all of the riches and the glory of God to deposit into our lives so that we can have strength to be his witnesses. In other words, you can't live the Christian life apart from him. And this is one of the problems with our current day and age and the way that we teach in many, ways Sunday school classes and stuff oftentimes Sunday school lessons are built off of ethics and so we'll teach you an ethical principle like you should be kind or you should be nice or you should be loving and then we teach on that ethical principle and send you out as if you can do all those things in your own power how many can be honest enough to say if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit I wouldn't be a nice person anybody out there besides me few more hands raised right I need a whole lot of coffee and the Holy Ghost <laughs> to live out the scriptures, right? You can't do it apart from his power. But Jesus, after telling them, you're going to be my witnesses in your neighborhood, Jerusalem, in the region, Judea, beyond this region, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, no doubt they're wondering, how are we going to do this And we should be wondering the same. We should want to be in the vein of the spread of the gospel. We should wake up with a passion of saying, God, use me so my neighbors can know that you have come, that salvation and grace has come. And we don't have to live in the prison of shame or fear or guilt anymore. But through Jesus, we can know love and salvation. Use me to spread that through my neighborhood into the nations that if we're going to do that, if I'm going to love my wife, if I'm going to love my children, if I'm going to love you, then I need power. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so then we come to Acts chapter 8. And it's interesting because you may wonder, how is this gospel going to spread? How is it going to spread to the ends of the earth? I mean, they didn't have Google back then. There weren't airplanes to fly to the ends of the earth. How is it going to spread? What would be even their motivation to leave the comforts of Jerusalem? Well, you see in verse number one, it says in chapter 8, verse number 1, and Saul approved of his execution, referring to Stephen, the first martyr. So now we open up this chapter with a martyrdom, and then it goes on to say, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Here we go. Except the apostles, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, those who were scattered, it says, went about preaching the word. In other words, God used persecution, an unlikely source, to get the uh, followers of Jesus, the early church, the disciples of Jesus, to go out to the to the world. Let me put it this way. If it wasn't for contraction pains, how many know the baby would not be encouraged to leave the womb? I remember my baby sister, my younger sister, she went off to college, she went to U of M, went off to college, came home one summer, and we're talking, and she says, Mom and I are button heads, can't get along anymore, I don't know what's going on. And I said, that's great, that's the very thing that's going to make you move one day out of her house. Because I mean, know that if you got along all the time, you wouldn't be encouraged to leave. Some of y'all are doing too many loads of laundry. You're making way too many meals. They they aren't ever gonna leave. (laughs) Amen. Sometimes the contraction pains moves us out. That's exactly what God does. He uses the. Contraction pains of persecution to get the church out, and everywhere they went, they spread the gospel. But they didn't just spread the gospel through preaching. But verse number six tells us crowds begin to come, and the next thing you know, there was uh, signs. Demonstrations of power, verse number seven, unclean spirits were crying out with loud voices coming out of people. Those who were paralyzed or lame were being healed. And I love verse number eight, so there was much joy in the city. How many want that to be said about our cities? That because of the presence of God and the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit, in the life of the believers there was joy in that city i want to see joy in cities all around the world because the spirit has come to overturn the work of darkness we should be praying for that we should be praying for the active ministry of the spirit to move among us some of you are already nervous so let me just go further how do we know we have the spirit how do you know you have the spirit that's the challenge that's taken up in the next Three scenes. We're going to see three scenes really quickly. It's going to move really quickly. That's going to help us understand how we know and can have confidence we have the Holy Spirit and how we can know a counterfeit movement to reject it and not be deceived. And so the focus is on this guy named Philip. Philip, along with Stephen, was part of seven who were picked to represent the church in Acts chapter 6. Some call them the original deacons. The word deacon is never used in Acts chapter 6. But if they are deacons, man, they raised the bar high. Because these guys were preaching the gospel, demonstrating the power of God, reaching the nations. They weren't just waiting on tables. The first scene we see is verses 9 through 14, where there's confrontation. And it says this, but there was a man named Simon who, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had named, he had uh, amazed them rather with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This this Simon is set up in contrast to Philip. Simon representing the kingdom of darkness, dark magic, dark arts, and and, and, uh, Philip representing the kingdom of light and the genuine move of God. Now Simon used magic, we could use the word sorcery or witchcraft. In a modern day term, he would probably be called a witch doctor, but through his spiritualism that came from the kingdom of darkness, he was doing acts that amazed the people and kept them enamored with him. He was a self-promoter, told them all he was great. And next thing you know, they begin to echo, this man is a great power of God. Now, there are two warnings in this. The first warning in this, friends, and don't forget this, everything that's spiritual is not from God. The Bible tells us there is a spirit realm, and in it we have the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, and there are going to be times where you will see great signs and great wonders, and you'll be so amazed, but don't you ever fall prey to assuming that everything that looks miraculous is from God. Now, how do you know the difference? Because both Philip and Simon were doing miraculous things. Here's how you know the difference. Philip's miraculous things were tethered to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the testimony of Christ as Lord. He was preaching, according to verse number 12, he was preaching the gospel concerning the name of Jesus, namely that Jesus Christ came as the Son of God, lived a perfect life, sinless life, went to the cross, paid the price for our sin debt that we could not pay, rose from the grave, offers us salvation through faith in him alone. Miracles that are connected to that message are true. Those things that are detached from that message are things that we should reject. The spirit and the word agree. Amen? This reminds me of a conversation I had this Friday. I was talking to an Ethiopian pastor a guy that I love and I appreciate. And we were just talking about how the gospel is spreading around the world. And he said something that was really profound to me. He says, you know, in the West, you guys are far more doctrinally driven. And he wasn't saying as a criticism, just more of an observation. And so he says, in the West, the gospel advances primarily through the battle of ideas. And the best idea wins. He says, but here in Africa, what we often see are power confrontations where there may be somebody in a region or a village who is a strong man because of their spiritual demonstrations of power. And it's not until a greater power comes in that the people are freed from that person. And so what we come in with is, yes, the gospel but demonstrations of the power of God through the presence of the Holy Spirit. It was a great, great conversation. And it, it brought alive to me in a contemporary sense that what we see in Acts chapter 8 is not some ancient tale far, far away, but this is present reality for many parts of the body of Christ today. And praise God that these people were freed from the kingdom of darkness through the proclamation of the gospel and demonstrations of the power of God. Remember, the Holy Spirit confirms the victory of the cross two ways by showing the divine strength of God, namely, that God is stronger than the kingdom of darkness and showing the divine salvation of God, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, come to save us. Now, if you don't remember anything else, that I'm telling you today, and I hope you remember all of it, that you can recite it, because next week there's a quiz. But if you don't remember anything else, remember this, that miracles are for the message, that signs are for sermons, that wonders are for the Word, That in the context of God's plan of gospel spread, he uses miracle signs and wonders not as an end unto themselves, but simply as a means of drawing the crowd so that they can hear the good news of Jesus. The day of Pentecost comes. They're speaking in all of these amazing tongues and languages. A crowd is drawn. The gospel is preached. Here, Philip is casting out uh, demons, and 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 healing is flowing. Not because Philip has any power in his own, but God has power to be able to do those things at His choosing. Not by our own manipulation, we can't force Him to do that. But when He does do that, it is so He can set the stage for the gospel. To to be proclaimed. Amen? Because ultimately, it's the gospel that changes people by God's grace through the work of the Spirit. Amen? So the confrontation happens. Even babies are crying. (laughs) But then there's confusion. Let's go on. Now, when the apostles... Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now we're starting to see some things that are interesting. I think the plot twist of this whole story is that Simon believed. It wasn't what I expected when I first read the story. Maybe you didn't see that coming either. But why did he believe? Was it a sincere belief? Because he was convinced of the lordship of Christ, because he was convicted of his sins, because he knew that a holy God demanded holiness from us that we could never achieve, that the only way to be made right before God was not of our own righteousness, but the applied righteousness of Jesus through the blood of Christ. No, that wasn't it. It was a a man who was enamored with power and he saw someone else coming in with something that was far more genuine, far more powerful than what he had. And he knew there was no way he could stand against the power of God. And so the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them," So he joins on in hope of getting this power so that he can maintain his own position within the village, within the community, within the region of Samaria. So when he sees how this whole thing works, he approaches the apostles, And he says, can I buy it? Now, we're going to come back to that in a moment, but I cannot overlook what seems to be pretty weird here, that they believed in Jesus but didn't have the Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit comes. And this is where I wish I had three more hours, but I got about 48 seconds to explain this to you. And that is, the book of Acts is not primarily a doctrinal book. It is primarily a history book. It's not primarily, though at times it does, say this is what you should do, is primarily capturing what did happen in the early church. That means it includes some things that are normative for the church throughout ages, but it also includes some special things that are not meant to be repeated. Everyone's not going to experience the day of Pentecost like they experienced. That was a special move of God, but it records it, it captures it. In other words, there are two types of passages in the scripture, and a good reader is going to ask themselves, what type of passage am I reading? There are prescriptive passages, and a prescriptive passage is, again, one of those passages that prescribes. It says, this is what you ought to do. But a descriptive passage, which is the second type, only describes. Oftentimes, without applying any moral judgment, it just tells you this happened. And so here we see that there was a group of people who believed and were baptized in Jesus' name, but yet the Spirit had not come. Now, is that normal? No, it's not normal. Because what the Bible teaches is that the normal way to receive the Holy Spirit is to repent and believe upon the message of Jesus. As a matter of fact, a few verses. Ephesians 1.13, listen to this. Paul writing, he says, in him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's when you believed upon the gospel of truth and the message of salvation, the Spirit was given to you as a gift. Peter, speaking at another place in the book of Acts, Acts 2.38 puts it this way. He says... Then Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not some secondary spiritual gift. It is the presence of God. That God's gift to us is a spirit living within us. He is called our guarantee." Anyone who's ever bought a house before knows what an earnest money deposit is. You're putting a deposit down, saying that I am purchasing this house with the full payment coming later. When God purchases his people, the deposit is the Holy Spirit. And at the second coming of Christ, we're going to receive the full actualization of that, the full payoff of our salvation as we enter into the kingdom of God. How many are looking forward to that day? So... Chris Brooks, if that's right, what's going on here? Here's what's going on here. And again, another 48 seconds. What is going on here is too deep for us to fully understand, and that is the Jews and the Samaritans hated so one another so much that there's nothing analogous throughout history. There's been a lot of ethnic disputes that have tried to mirror the the hatred that the Jews and the Samaritans have for one another, but the fact is, is both of them dehumanized one another, saw each other as being arch enemies, saw each other as being controlled by demons. And so, as F.F. Bruce, one New Testament scholar says, in order for the Jews to accept that the gospel had come to the Samaritans, they needed nothing short of a Pentecost-type experience for them to know this is God. So when they hear that this man, Philip, had preached the gospel and there was work that was going on and people coming to Christ. They dispatch nobody less than Peter and John to go and verify this is true. Peter and John see it, and they say, this is true. This is the same thing that happened to us. And then they lay hands on them as confirmation that we are family. We are of the same spiritual family. And this family is more than just skin. It is thicker than blood. We are held together by the eternal bond of the Holy Holy Spirit, not in a temporal sense, but forever and for eternity. Praise God. We are family. Regardless of your race, your background, your ethnicity, your social status, any of that, if you put your faith in Christ, we are family. And that's what it took for Samaritans to accept Jewish believers and Jewish believers to accept Samaritan believers. And it's a beautiful thing. And Simon sees this and says, can I buy that? I want to buy that. What he didn't understand is the Spirit is a gift. Now, what's the greatest gift you've ever received? I don't know about you, but the greatest gift I've ever received, hands down, was a snowblower. (laughs) I'm not lying. I love this thing. I think that snowblowers should be an Olympic sport. I love blowing snow when the kids are walking down the street to cover them all up. Pray for my heart. That's my issue. I love when my neighbor comes out with his snowblower, and it's a competition to me. I got a beating. I got it bad. My mother-in-law got me that snowblower a few years ago for my birthday. Now, can you imagine her coming to me with this gift, happy birthday, son? And I said to her, how much for it? I want to buy it from you. As soon as the money changes hands, it's no longer a gift, is it? Simon had made a mistake and thought, He could buy this gift. And do you know it would be even more insulting to her, I would imagine, if a week later she saw me trying to sell that thing online? How offensive would that be? And all the re-gifters in here are nervous now. (laughs) We know who you are. But this is the mistake that that Simon, not Simon Peter, Simon the Sorcerer makes concerning the Holy Spirit, all right, let's, let's end this thing with a word of correction. Verse number 20, but Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Then the key word, repent. Therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the call of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Simon made multiple mistakes, including thinking that he needed Peter to pray for him. Peter had already told him, you go to God yourself. Praise God that we don't need saints or intermediaries. I mean, thank God that because of the finished work of Jesus, we got access to the Father because of the blood of Jesus. Amen. And so he had tried to profit from the Holy Spirit, reject anything, anybody who tries to profit from the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is a gift of God given to those who have trusted in him. And so how do we receive the Holy Spirit? One word, repent. And that's what I wanna invite you to do today. Everybody stand all over this church. Maybe you say, I need strength, I need forgiveness. I need the power of God, because I can't be the husband, the wife, the father, the man of God, the woman of God, I'm supposed to be apart from the power of God. That's a good thing. It's a good place to be if you're at that place. Repent, trust in him. To repent just means to turn around, trust in him. Stop trying to lead your own life by yourself, but surrender your heart to the Lord and the Holy Spirit will be given. And if you have the Holy Spirit, then go forth and be his witness. Go forth in his power. If today you wanna trust in him, just know there'll be friends at the front to pray with you. There'll be some in the lobby. We'd love to connect with you, talk more with you about these things and pray that the power of God, his grace and his mercy be visited upon your life. Let's pray together.